just want to uh, welcome everybody on behalf of the Churchill Centre UK. My name is Maurice Mendoza. I'm uh, chairman of the membership committee of the Churchill Centre UK and also a former student at the LSE, International History Department. And in that light, very delighted to see uh, such two great institutions come together uh, that have had a, such an important role in my, my own life. Uh, I wanted to thank the Churchill family for all their support for what the Churchill Centre does and uh, delighted to see Randolph Churchill and Emma Soames in the audience today. Um, Lord Marland was due to come, but I think called back for voting at Parliament, but uh, just wanted to thank him for his work as chairman of the trustees. That's where I should be. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't tell him <laughs> Uh, for, for his work in reinvigorating the Churchill Centre UK. Also, finally, to thank uh, Professor Nigel Ashton uh, for enabling this event to happen, and uh, two former student friends of mine in the audience, Joe Malo and Anthony Bess, for also helping to bring this idea to fruition. Uh, Winston Churchill is said to have once said, as a young man, I believe, we are all worms, but I do believe I am a glowworm. And uh, the Churchill Centre UK exists to make uh, Winston Churchill's life and legacy the man the late liberal peer, Lord Jenkins of Hillhead, describes as the greatest human being ever to occupy 10 Downing Street, glow as brightly as possible, to inspire new leaders and encourage new talent. In that light, uh, the charity is running, launched uh, this coming year, a design competition supported by Pentland, which will encourage new design students to interpret Churchill and what he means to contemporary society and a public speaking competition and many other initiatives. Being a member, uh, you support all of that work but also have access to events like this and others uh, and all for, the, for students for the price roughly of a pint of beer uh, per month. Uh, <laughs> if you would all... If you would all like to, uh, we're very welcome to attend our reception, which is, I understand, on the fifth floor of this building, so you either make your way out by the staircase or the elevators. Um, we hope uh, this event becomes annual, but there's no pressure on Professor Ashton uh, to make it so on the speakers. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Professor Ashton. Thank you. Well, many thanks, uh, Morris, for that kind introduction, and thanks also on behalf of um, the LSE and the International History Society, uh, International History Department at uh, LSE, um, for the generous sponsorship um, of the event by the Churchill Society and the Churchill Centre. The motion uh, before us for debate uh, today is: uh, Was Churchill more of a progressive uh, than a reactionary? And we have four very distinguished speakers. I'll just uh, briefly introduce them all. First of all, we have Dr. Piers Brendan, who's a fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, where he was the keeper of the Churchill Archives Centre from 1995 through 2001. He's the author of uh, numerous books, including, appropriately enough, Winston Churchill, A Brief Life, uh, and also The Decline and Fall of the British Empire. Next, right next to me here, we have Professor John Charmley, who is the head of the School of History at the University of East Anglia. His published works include uh, History of Conservative Politics since 1830 
and again, appropriately enough, Churchill, the end of glory, a political biography, and also Churchill's Grand Alliance, the Anglo-American special relationship from 1940 through 1957. On my right, I have uh, Professor David Edgerton, uh, who is the Hans Rising Chair at the Centre for History of Science, Technology and Medicine at Imperial College London. And his published works include Warfare State, Britain 1920 through 1970, uh, Shock of the Old, Technology and Global History since 1900, and directly relevant, of course, to today's topic, Britain's War Machine, Weapons, Resources and Experts in the Second World War. And finally, on the uh, far right here, Lord Hurd of Westwell, who was uh, in the Conservative governments between 1979 and uh, 1995, first of all Minister for Europe, then Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, then Home Secretary, and finally, most importantly, Foreign Secretary. Well, in 1997, Lord Hurd was elevated to the House of Lords. And his published works of history include uh, The Search for Peace, Robert Peel, a biography. And finally, uh, Choose Your Weapons, the British Foreign Secretary, 200 Years of Argument, Success and Failure. Well, I'm not going to promise you 200 years of argument now, but hopefully about an hour and a half of very productive debate. And I'm going to turn, first of all, uh, to Lord Hurd um, to make his own views clear on the question as to whether uh, Churchill was more of a progressive than a reactionary. So over to you, Lord Hurd. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's uh, good to be here, though I should... It's, it's actually slightly uh, more uh, a thrill to be here because I, uh, of the knowledge that I should be voting in the House of Lords as we speak. But uh, I, I, will, I will survive that, I think. Um, I'm clear that Churchill, whom I didn't know but whom I've, I've read a lot about, um, was essentially a, a buccaneer, he uh, was in constant search of excitement. Uh, and, and when he got excitement, he enjoyed himself and he got the most out of it. He was in that respect very similar to um, the Israeli, as it happens, I'm writing a book about Israeli at the moment in any good, shop, good bookshop after April uh, <laughs> of next year. Um, they, they both men had uh, two things in common this search for excitement. Um, and Israeli um, looked first of all for, for women, then novels, then money, then there was a sort of scale of, of, of excitements which he, which, he, which he looked for and, 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 and found some satisfaction in almost all of them. Um, and Churchill, uh, similar. And of course, when you're dealing with a buccaneer, you don't expect consistency. You don't get consistency, so it's not much good expecting it. Uh, it's true of both men. And um, it's true particularly of Churchill, who, of course, um, to use the 19th century phrase, ratted and then re-ratted. He changed his party twice, starting as a, as a Tory, turning into being a, a member of the, the Liberal government, and ending with, as the leader of the, the Tory party. So it's quite a... Uh, it's quite a sequence, uh, but I think the common thread through all that was actually uh, the search for excitement, service in the search for excitement. Um, and if you look through uh, uh, Churchill's 
um, if you look through the different biographies, excellent biographies which have been written about Churchill, that is a, a thread which I think is, is pretty well continuous. Um, so uh, the two things that they had in common were, first of all, this uh, search for excitement, and secondly, uh, oratory. Uh, they were uh, the two, in my view, the two outstanding orators of the 19th and 20th century. They had a, a way with words, as it were, at a time when having a way with words was the key to success. Um, now more modern keys to success are being, being found and misused. Uh, and, and, um, so the, but the search goes on. Um, both men, Disraeli was entirely a House of Commons man. He didn't make, he made one or two big speeches outside, but it wasn't, it wasn't really uh, his forty. Um, but in the House of Commons, he was, he was superb. Uh, Churchill was a good House of Commons man, but not a superlative one. Um, he, he, he was good. He, he, he didn't make very many bad speeches, though of course he made some. Um, and he, uh, 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 for the rest... He, 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 but his, his main excitement, the, the great excitement from his point of view, the, the peak, the pinnacle, were, were the use he made of the, of the, of the radio in particular. Um, and um, some of us can remember, I can remember, um, that, that voice coming through, and, and the, there's a sort of excitement in the voice. You could tell that you're going to listen to a great speech just by the way it's sort of put across. And, um, uh, but it was really, I think, the radio speeches. He was good in the House of Commons, but not superlative. I think they, they're the radio speeches that he, that he, um, that he, he, he really made his name. As for views, well, it's part of my thesis, part of my answer to your question, that the views don't really matter um, because they varied so much. Uh, Churchill was, he began as a, as a, as a Tory, um, the Boer War, Malacan's Field Force, uh, the books he wrote, um, he, 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 were, were the books of excitement, were books of excitement, rather juvenile excitement, um, the, the fun of battle, the fun of fighting, the fun of killing, um, the, the, um, the excitement of being involved in a war. And um, uh, he, uh, but before that, he was, a, he, was a, he was a very liberal Home Secretary. Uh, that's a job I, I've had, as you said. And um, uh, I quoted, quite often I quoted, um, uh, a famous remark of Churchill, that the, the test of a civilized nation is how it treats the people whom it locks up. And that is a, is a pretty good test. And that, he was a, a liberal Home Secretary. He, um, uh, he, 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 he worked in terms of re what is now called rehabilitation, the, the, the effort to, to, make, to, to turn people's lives, the effort to take, take away their liberty if you have to, but to use that opportunity when you, they're in the, under your control to change their lives. And... Um, his, his speeches as Home Secretary are well, are well worth looking at. And that's the theme that runs, that runs uh, through them. But of course it was the search for excitement, the famous siege of Sydney Street, 
when uh, uh, Churchill, wearing his top hat, was driven down to a place where uh, a couple of two or three gangsters were holed up, besieged by the by the police, um, and the excitement. And of course, he exposed himself to danger. Uh, he was a conspicuous fellow, and uh, uh, he, he actually, it presumably, imperiled the lives of the people round about him by this escapade of of of, 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 of Sydney Street. And but those kind of escapades were quite frequent. He, he did he did the same uh, um, uh, in Antwerp uh, in, during the first years of the of World War One, uh, and he was he was always game for for, for trouble. Game for uh, excitement, even if that meant putting other people's uh, lives or liberty at, at, at risk. So, but he was, I think, in those days when he was Home Secretary, he was, as it were, a genuine small L liberal as well as a, a big L liberal. He, he, uh, uh, he, 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 he temporarily, at any rate, because he was a buccaneer, so he moved on, but temporarily, he, he, he had the liberal litany in his heart. Um, but it didn't last. And I think probably more true to his absolute nature, to his underlying nature, was the, um, the Toryism, um, which he was born with, which his father, whom he, um, he hugely respected, though the, the, the respect was not mutual. Um, he, that was his, he, the Blenheim, being related to the Churchills, that, that all came as, as, as part of it. And then he switched because he was the Tory party was going through a, a bad patch, a boring patch, um, and, and he, he, he deserted and, and, and joined Asquith as as First Lord of the Admiralty. Um, and um, and then 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 gradually he became he became a, a keen coalition man. He, he was in favour of re retaining the coalition. Um, uh, because that was his best, his, his best hope of continuing employment and excitement. Um, and he gradually uh, drifted to the right. So that, that on the two things which helped um, uh, pull down his reputation in the 20s and 30s, um, I said there were three things. Uh, there, there, there was um, India, where he uh, tried to destroy uh, Samuel Hawes' uh, India Bill, uh, which was the first move towards giving the Congress Party and other, other Indian political institutions, giving them some, some breath of freedom, some beginnings of responsibility. He, he, he voted against that and was, was uh, passionately opposed to that because he, he remembers the polo-playing Indian Raj of his youth when he'd been there. Um, and he loved the, the pomp and the ceremony of the Raj. Um, and um, he, he, that, that, that caught his imagination. Uh, and of course it is, it does catch anybody's imagination, the idea of um, an emperor or an empress coming from over the seas from thousands of miles away and ruling with just a handful of white men, uh, the, the, the guardians as they call themselves, uh, um, ru ruling India that struck his imagination his historical imagination which was always very strong um, and then the other things well the two things, well, serious things that he got wrong um, the most serious I think was 
getting us back onto the gold standard, 1925, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. I think that that probably uh, will be judged to have been an error. Um, certainly, Keynes thought it was an error, and I think Keynes was probably right. And, and thirdly, and, and lastly, the, the abdication. Again, that, that sort of sense of chivalrous excitement, which uh, was part of Churchill, was mobilized in his mind in defense of the good-looking young king who, for God's sake, had fallen in love with admittedly a fairly disastrous lady. Uh, and rather than give up the woman, he gave up the crown. And, and uh, this, was all a, this was high tragedy in, in, in Churchill's book, in Churchill's uh, mind. And he, 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 he chivalrously, uh, but mistakenly, uh, backed the king hoped the king would, would, as it were, fight it out. When he didn't do that, he continued to, to as it were, lament the king. Um, he became a sort of, almost a, a Jacobite. At least he would have done if the Duke of Windsor had been a different sort of person um, and capable of sort of rallying people around him. Uh, Churchill would have been the first on, 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 to join the colours. And it's just as, therefore, just as well that the, the opportunity to, to rise. Um, then he... Uh, the, the oratory, on the other hand, I, I think that uh, this was a great gift, and I, I'm, I would, I would, I'm like to, I would like to see the, the day when the gift of oratory returned to the British Parliament. Uh, it doesn't exist now. It just doesn't exist. It existed in vestiges when I first joined the, the, the when I first became a member of the House of Commons. There were two or three people. Um, Michael Foote, Enoch Powell, uh, one or two others who have forgotten now, uh, who, in my view, were real orators. You, when you saw that name up on the enunciator, you, you went into the House of Commons, whereas that process of emptying the House of Commons is now much more familiar. <laughs> um, and, and, and Churchill, of course, had that. He had that gift. He didn't always use it well, but he often used it well. And that is a huge gift. He shared with that gift. He shared with 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 Disraeli. Um, he was a. Uh, I, I won't attempt to, to imitate or quote, except just to say that the the, the the speech that I had, which I remember most clearly, was uh, on the evening when George VI died, and um, Churchill broadcast. Uh, to the nation and he, he, he said and I, I won't imitate it and I who was born amidst the tranquil and august uh, memories of the Victorian Empire can feel again a surge of excitement at the when I utter the words of the prayer and then very loud God save the Queen it was, a, it was a very dramatic moment, uh, and, and, and just sitting it as a, uh, listening to it as an undergraduate at Cambridge, um, it, it provided the sort of you know it set a thrill through through the people who were listening, um, and and uh, uh, he had that gift, and that is why um, if you if you have the gift of oratory, quotations attach themselves to you. You don't naturally actually have had to say the words attributed to you. 
but they attach themselves to you because they've come adrift from their own moorings, their own moorings. And um, so Disraeli has, I think it's like, I counted it uh, when I was doing the book, uh, he had something like, in the Oxford Book of Quotations, something like 130 quotations. Gladstone, five. Robert Peel, none. Um, and, and that had nothing to do with their, their worth as, 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 as prime ministers. It had simply to do with the, the, the fact that they attracted to them quotations which in some cases were almost certainly made by other people. Uh, but he, they attracted by the sheer, their own power, their own attractive power, they joined the queue. Um, so that's really what I think. But I think, so it's, it's the search for excitement. Took a liberal form, took a Tory form, Probably the Tory form was dominant, if that's the right word, uh, in, in his mind. Um, but basically, it was the enjoyment of uh, the, the enjoyment of excitement. That that he was always looking for something exciting. His life is just punctuated by events, some of them slightly disreputable, which were attracted him because they were exciting. That more than any definite. Uh, uh, commitment or belief was, I think, the key to, to Churchill. Many thanks. Many thanks for her now, Professor uh, Jitton. Shall I stand up? Or we if you like, it's up to you. Yes, I think the occasion demands standing up. <laughs> Sorry. Now, in 1939, when he came back into government, Churchill looked like a figure from another age. As Lord Hurd has reminded us, he was a die-hard imperialist. He was a great defender of Edward VIII. He was a great orator, and indeed he enjoyed the finer things in life uh, on an aristocratic scale. Yet he was also an intellectual. He was to be honoured with a Nobel Prize, not in warmongering like Henry Kissinger, but in literature, he was a historian, of course. Now, there's no doubt, I think, that in mid-century, Churchill was politically, at least, more of a reactionary than a progressive. Though, and this is crucial, he led a coalition government. He brought Labour into the government. And that wartime coalition brought together two parties that were much further apart than the parties in the coalition uh, today. Indeed, it's worth noting that Labour and the Tories before the general election were closer than uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Tories. Now, all this was central to the fighting of uh, the war, though the war itself was nowhere near as progressive as historians of the left have suggested. Now, I don't hold with a standard view that Churchill ran the strategical side of the war while Labour ran the home front, a conceit already present uh, in the war and much reproduced since. In fact, the home front, or rather the crucial bits, were in the hands of reactionary Churchill cronies and more progressive, conservative Churchill cronies. It was most certainly not in the hands of the left, nor even in the hands of Ernest Bevin. Now, the idea that reactionaries, indeed Churchill himself, were incapable of running a modern industrial or scientific war is surprisingly common. It was present in the war itself, especially in 1942, when critics from both left and right 
complained about the lack of production, the lack of modern uh, weapons. And they blamed it on Churchill, they blamed it on the British military, on British businesses, indeed on British reactionaries of all types. The Churchill tank, at least in 1942, was for some a symbol of British backwardness. According to Nye Bevan, Churchill was at best a figure from the Great War, incapable of understanding the Second World War, just as British generals were incapable of fighting with tanks on the Western Front. So the argument was that Churchill was a military-industrial reactionary as well as a political one. But nothing could be further from the truth. Churchill was a military and industrial futurist, crazy about new weapons of war. He thought that the Second World War would be very different from the first and was strongly confirmed in this view by the events of 1939 and 1940. This was a war of speed, of maneuver. This was a war in which Britain had great advantages. Churchill in the 1930s called not simply for more armaments, but for modern arms, for aeroplanes, for rockets, for aerial mines. And he had at his side the physicist uh, Frederick Lindemann, Lord, uh, Fred, um, Lord Charwell, as he became, not as he's often said, a scientific advisor, but as an advisor on a whole range of matters. Churchill wanted Britain to fight a war of machines, of gadgets, and he promoted them furiously. He invented his own incredible trench-cutting machine that he expected would cut across the Western Front and, and lead a drive to uh, Berlin. He was there from the 1930s supporting the British rocket program, uh, uh, practically un unknown uh, today. In 1940-41, he was an extremely strong supporter of atomic bombs and jet engines. Britain, he thought, would win the war with airplanes, with a highly armoured army, not with a mass of uh, infantry. Indeed, he wanted to keep men making things, including making beer, rather than waste them in the infantry. Now, you might think this is all a bit uh, strange, but imagine if Churchill's dreams had come true. What if Bomber Command had reduced Germany to rubble by 1942? What if British armoured forces had crushed the defences of Fortress Europe in that same year? Britain would have emerged preeminent in the world, the greatest power on earth. What indeed if Britain had been the first to get the atomic bomb, as it might have done, had the estimates the British scientists made of its costs and speed of production come true? The problem is that this great modernist vision, futurist vision of war didn't come true. The development of weapons took longer than he thought. Their effects were much less than he'd hoped. Churchill was astonishingly a much more radical figure when it came to machines than most progressives, though they and many historians following them uh, have not understood this. Why? Because in the historiography of 20th century Britain, the technologically progressive could not be politically reactionary. Prussian militarists and Nazis could be technologically progressive, but not good old British reactionaries. What is surprising, not least when one inquires into the politics of Britain's favourite engineers, Frank Whittle and Barnes-Wallace, was that they were figures of the right. One a supporter of the famous parliamentary leper of Smethwick, the other an associate of the Monday Club in the late 1960s. So it was possible to be an enthusiast 
for machines, for science, and to be politically reactionary even in Britain. But is it possible to be reactionary about machines? The usual answer would, I suppose, be yes, and it's called, misleadingly, uh, Luddism. But is it possible to be an enthusiast for new machines and yet be reactionary about them? It hardly makes sense. What on earth could a technological reactionary be? Well, it could be somebody who thinks that old machines have more of a future than new ones. Say that wind farms are a better bet than nuclear stations. Or is that the other way around now? Or it could be somebody like the interwar submariner Bernard Ackworth, who complained that the scientists have too much influence, engineers not enough, who believed that the Churchillian policy of shifting the navy over to oil, as he'd done in 1914, and shifting to very large uh, warships, was a retrograde, indeed a very dangerous step. Now, Churchill was clearly not that kind of technological reactionary. But in some respects, he was. He and uh, Lord Lindemann had a deep antipathy to bureaucratized research and development, a deep antipathy to the scientists in the uh, ministries, in the government as a whole. They were hostile, too, to the established scientific advisors of the left and the right, from the conservative MP for Cambridge University and Nobel Prize winner uh, A.V. Hill to the former naval officer and leftist Patrick Blackett. Churchill and Lindemann wanted action, uh, initiative, creativity, individual effort, not great laboratories and tedious expert uh, uh, committees. Now, they were uh, in a position to get what they wanted, and they supported individual inventors. They created institutions outside the weapons development uh, bureaucracy. Churchill tellingly wanted in, in weapons named after their inventors, as in the First World War, where you had the Stokes mortar or the Mills uh, grenade. And he took this fight uh, on behalf of his technical cronies uh, into his war memoirs. Yet he failed. Who has ever heard of the Jefferies gun, for example? Indeed, there's a whole uh, list of otherwise unknown inventors who are name-checked in Churchill's memoirs, while famous inventors and scientists of the era are pointedly left out. Now, Churchill was naively over-enthusiastic about new machines, and some academic scientists were deeply critical of him for this. They were Luddites, if you like, hostile to untried new machines, and they were probably right to be. Now, just the other day, uh, David Cameron... Uh, claimed that we needed to go back to the war and to relax regulations, to let the men of push and go, as it were, get on with it. Now, even in the best case, that is not necessarily a good uh, uh, idea, as Churchill's experience with um, rockets, uh, with aerial mines, and many other things besides uh, suggest. Now, Churchill, of course, and Brother Cameron, ignored the fact that the war saw increased regulation, an increased role for labor, a massively increased national uh, debt, indeed. But this was not the first time that Cameron uh, made an excursion into imaginary histories of the war. To conclude, I want to suggest that there is a politics of machines in Britain, and it's much more complex than the suggestion that one um, could be progressive or reactionary as far as machines are concerned. Churchill exemplifies this perfectly. 
He makes the case that machines are central to British history and politics, the politics of the right, indeed. But also, he makes the case that the politics of machines is much more interesting than we might at first blush imagine. In his politics, Churchill came to be a reactionary, the one who was forced to pursue progressive policies. But in relation to machines, he was a progressive who often pursued reactionary policies. Thank you very much. Many thanks for that, Professor Edgerton. And our next speaker uh, is going to be Professor John Charman. Well, I shall, I shall stay seated. Um, writing in 1927, just after the general strike, to Lord Irwin, the future uh, Lord Halifax, who was then Viceroy of India, Lord Robert Cecil commented, I do believe that Winston takes no interest in politics unless they involve the chance of bloodshed. Preferably foreigners, but failing that, a few homegrown trades unionists would do. <laughs> so, clearly, from that source, from the House of Sissel, uh, there was a, a sense that Churchill was wholly a reactionary figure, which, coming from the House of Sissel, is, is, is quite something, given that... Uh, there might be something further to the right of the Tory party than the House of Sissel, but the electron microscope that will reveal it has not yet been invented. <laughs> we should not, however, take it terribly seriously. Churchill, in many senses, and we've just heard uh, in Dave Dedrickson's excellent uh, lecture, uh, one sign of it, was a late 19th century Whig liberal. He had that, that liberal enthusiasm from the age of progress, the machinery would solve more or less anything. Just read H.G. Wells, read some of what Churchill writes, and, and you'll see a man who, on that side of things, as we've heard, is very progressive, and that comes from that liberalism, that late 19th century optimistic liberalism that I think is, is foundational as part of Churchill. He remains, I think, for a long time a liberal, but what I want to argue here is that, like so many liberals, we often think of Churchill as somehow sui generis, somehow unique. In fact, here he is not. He undergoes, I want to argue, that process of disillusionment that was not uncommon in liberals of his generation. And why is he disillusioned? He gets disillusioned for the same thing that disillusions other liberals which is the excesses of the Great War and of the Russian Revolution. And I, th I think that, that that period runs through Churchill's career like a caesura. If you actually go back to the time when Lord Robert Cecil first knew Churchill in the, uh, the, the golden days of the Edwardian period, Churchill seems terribly liberal in many senses. I think one might almost argue that his initial Toryism is not aboriginal, it's accidental. His mother knows, for obvious reasons, a lot of Tories. His father, after all, was a, a famous uh, Tory maverick. And it's on that side of politics that, that Churchill knew people, and Churchill gets into politics because of the people that he knows via his family. And they are not what Churchill was in many senses. We haven't heard the word Whig very often. Churchill, to my mind, is a Whig. 
He comes, of course, on the Spencer side from one of the most distinguished Whig families, and in many senses, not just in the sense of his enjoyment of the good things of life, he remains very Whiggish indeed. Certainly the only Whiggish vice he didn't have uh, was promiscuity. He was one of the most faithful men ever to live in Downing Street. And uh, I think uh, that's easily forgotten. Churchill is a Whig. I think it does us no good to look at what he does in a department. He tends to take on the colour of the department that he works in. He would actually have made, in many senses, although it wasn't a career open to him, the most brilliant barrister. Uh, He could argue a case black was white. So when he's at the Board of Trade, he's in favour of reducing naval spending and progressive social legislation. The moment he moves to the Admiralty, the hell with all of that, I want lots of battleships. That doesn't mean he's become reactionary. It simply means that he's, he's taking on that role at which he excelled of the advocate of his department. And what people tend to forget about Churchill is that one of the reasons his career lasts for so long is he really does master detail until very late on in his career. He actually has a tremendous mastery of the brief that he is given. That's why he keeps getting brought back. He actually can do not just the oratory. Everyone always goes on about the oratory. But he actually knew how to run a department. When Baldwin brings him back in 1924, it's not that surprising. He needed someone to run a big department, the Exchequer. If you look at Baldwin's front bench, it was full of people who couldn't run whelk stalls, as they went on to prove. Mm -hmm. Churchill could run several whelk stalls at once. If you compare him to his great friend, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, you can see the difference. Birkenhead is a Tory. He's an Aboriginal Tory. He's 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 a cynic... He's a pessimist. He did not believe in progress. You can you look in vain in all F.E. Smiths for any sign of anything other than utter contempt for the idea that mankind was redeemable. If F.E. had actually been religious, he'd have been a Calvinist. But he was far too pessimistic even to be a Calvinist. <laughs> mankind was bound for hell in a handcart, and the best thing you could do was to eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you certainly would die. You don't see any of that in Churchill. Churchill is he's much more optimistic. He's much more, he's, he's, he's much more of a progressive in that sense. But the war cuts across that belief in progress. Like so many Edwardian liberals, Churchill's progressivism died in Flanders' field. And also in what happened afterwards. People go on about the way in which the Russian Revolution somehow sends in reactionary. Lloyd George, for example, talks about Churchill's grand ducal blood revolting at the wholesale slaughter of grand dukes. (laughs) Well, fair enough if you come from that family. You have a perfect ancestral right to rejoice at grand dukes being slaughtered, particularly if you think you're going to be next. And that's the point. Churchill came to have, first, a suspicion, a deep suspicion of what he later called the failed democratic experiment. By 1931-32, he is writing about the failed democratic experiment. And you can see why he thinks it's failed. It's brought Baldwin to power, and then it brings Neville Chamberlain to power. That brings Gordon Brown and David Cameron. So maybe, maybe Churchill had a point about the failed democratic experiment. 
You know, anything that produces that, well, as he himself said, it was the worst form of government, barring all the others. You can see this very clearly in the India episode, which is always, to my mind, utterly misrepresented because it's mostly written about by progressive lefties, even progressive Tory lefties, who think it's absolutely ghastly. If you actually look at what Churchill's saying, he's saying three things. He's saying that the measure that Baldwin wants to, and Hall want to push through hasn't been thought out, and it hadn't been. He's saying that most of the Indian princes are being blackmailed into accepting it, and they were. And he's saying that no one's looked at how you work out this stuff about Hindus and Muslims, and it's all going to end up in a bloodbath. Well, 1947 doesn't suggest that Churchill's reactionary instincts were altogether wrong. Just because these views are not fashionable does not make them wrong. As Churchill writes to Linlithgow, the viceroy, in 1931, he writes that progress has been shown to be a myth. I have no faith in progress. And in that sense... His move into the Tory party wasn't the only one. A lot of Edwardian liberals go in the same direction for much the same reason. This was not, as I think historians have tended to misrepresent it, uh, a case of the hardening of the political arteries. This was a man who remained flexible, intelligent, observing what was happening in his world. As you saw, as he did see, in the late 30s, democracy disappearing country by country in Europe until west of the Rhine there was Britain and there was France. How could you believe in progress there? Where was the progress? Mankind was indeed, as he'd argued back in the early 30s, heading back a phrase he was later to use more memorably in 1940 to a new dark age and that makes it all the more remarkable what he does in 1940 because all the progressives all the moderate Tories most of the Labour people thought there was no chance of victory as Pierre Laval said just after they'd stomach-pumped him before shooting him for treason in 1946. Who but a fool could have believed in 1940 that the British would fight on? Well, actually, you look in vain for many, uh, many people thinking that. What Lord Melbourne, the Victorian Prime Minister, once said was true. Melbourne once said that what all the damn fools said would not happen has happened, and what all the wise men said would happen has not happened. And in 1940, it needed somebody like Churchill. And Churchill's, Churchill's speeches don't come out of a sense of optimism. They come out of his sense of history. Churchill deservedly won the, uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature, unlike most of our modern politicians who probably ought to win the Booker Prize for Fiction. <laughs> uh, and Churchill took the long view of British history. He could not see the light, but he could not see it going down before the darkness of Hitler. 
And I hate to contradict Churchill on one of the few occasions one finds him being modest, but he really was talking the most frightful rot when he said, in 19, said, said after 1945 that he just gave the lion's roar. It's nonsense. You, you only got to look at what people were writing to each other, what's in the mass observation surveys. The country was in the grip of a collective nervous breakdown. It thought the French were going to save them, an odd idea to be, to be sure, but it thought the French were going to save them. And the French had gone. There was nothing left, but there was. Halifax could have become Prime Minister and could have talked about we shall parlay on the beaches, we shall negotiate on the landing grounds, we shall have protocols on the streets and we shall never stop talking. They didn't get that. But if they had have done, they'd probably been all right with it. What they got instead was this visionary historian who, despite his own pessimism about where mankind was going, could not believe that British history would end with the swastika flying over Downing Street. So in that sense, I think we can see Churchill as rather like his greatest ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough. He is a man disillusioned with humanity, and in that sense, tending towards the view that order is more important than freedom. But he is an ancestral Whig, and deep within his DNA is the belief that, not democracy, I don't think he was ever really a Democrat, but that freedom, that is, the government of the many by the enlightened aristocracy, was the best way forward. He was wrong about that, although... We'll see really when you look at where we are now. <laughs> Thank you. Many thanks, Professor Charmley. And our final speaker this evening is Dr. Piers Brendan. Well, both sides um, contain some truth in this, this argument. Um, and one could take either view. In fact, when I was first asked about, about this, I said that I, I would argue for whatever case, uh, in favor of whatever case John Charmley was against. Um, actually, I agree with quite a lot of what he said for a, for, for a miracle. Um, but I, 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 I actually think that it, uh, Douglas was right, that it doesn't really matter. Um, whether he was more progressive than reactionary or the other way about. Because as an admirer of Churchill, I should say that um, his predominantly reactionary views, um, they, they, they didn't matter. Or if they did matter, it was because they constituted much of his vision of what Britain was, what the British way of life was, and the important thing was that he was prepared to defend, he was determined to defend and preserve uh, the, 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 that vision. What mattered above all was that Churchill had the courage of his convictions when the state was in danger and that he gave the nation unparalleled leadership during the greatest crisis in its history. But I don't want simply to, to give you a sort of rah-rah patriotic account. What I, in fact, I'm, I'm going to argue as, as devil's advocate that he, he did have predominantly reactionary views um, I, I agree with John that he was a Whig aristocratic adventurer, that was David Canadine's phrase, um, and that um, he was ambitious um, 
he was an opportunist like his father. He espoused Tory democracy uh, in the hope that this would be democracy which supports the Tories. Uh, in youth, he nurtured social Darwinist notions about preserving the integrity of the race. Uh, he said, you know, we must have an imperial stock uh, to keep the empire, and he, was, uh, he, he had no doubt about the inferiority of lesser breeds. Um, as a liberal, he fantasized about being a Bismarckian autocrat. He was excited by the opportunity that um, opposing w uh, uh, um, the women's suffrage gave him, and he did oppose it. He favored penal colonies for vagrants and the sterilization of the unfit. He used soldiers to quell strikers in Liverpool and elsewhere. Charles Masterman uh, deplored his whiff of grape shot attitude, and a, a, a criticism that could have been echoed in 1920 when he wanted to take the transport workers by the throat. Churchill found the Great War delicious, in his fa famous word, and appeared to long above all, all other things for uh, military glory, cost what it might. What it might. The journalist A.G. Gardner feared that Churchill would write his name large on the nation's future in letters of blood. He sees himself moving through the smoke of battle, triumphant, terrible, his brow clothed with thunder, his legions looking to him for victory and not looking in vain. He looked back not just to Marlborough but to Bonaparte, of whom he kept a bronze statue on a table opposite his desk in the Ministry of Munitions in 1917. Lloyd George said that uh, Churchill had ruined himself by reading about Napoleon. Churchill denounced the Russian Revolution with even more virulence than Burke had, had denounced the French. Civilization is being completely extinguished over gigantic areas while Bolsheviks hop and caper like troops of ferocious baboons amid the ruins of cities and the corpses of their victims. Um, Churchill hankered to, to, to pursue a policy of thorough towards Sinn Féin, wanting to bomb and machine gun its meetings from the air. He supported reprisal murders of, by the Black and Tans. He saw post-war troubles in such countries as Ireland, Egypt, and Mesopotamia uh, as part of a conspiracy to rob Britain of victory and undermine its global predominance. His wife, Clementine, urged him to moderate his belligerence and avoid the rough, iron-fisted Hunnish way. In 1922, Churchill was accused of being um, the potential head of a fascisti party, and the fascists had only just come into existence in, in, in Britain, and Arthur Balfour thought Churchill an almost reactionary Tory. These views, of course, were prescient. In 1924, Churchill re-ratted to the Conservatives. He became, in his own words, the last orthodox chancellor of the Victorian epoch. During the general strike, he declared a little bloodshed would do no harm. In 1927, he met Mussolini and afterwards paid fulsome tributes to his Roman genius. Following the defeat of 1929, Churchill moved further to the right. He disliked the extension of the franchise to flappers and wanted to give greater weight to more responsible elements. He said that the empire should be secured by advancing along the old road, and he fell out with his party over India. Um, the conservative declaration that it should progress towards dominion status drove Churchill almost demented with fury, according to Sir Samuel, Sir Samuel Hall, who said that Churchill wanted to rule India as Mussolini ruled North Africa. Churchill was especially wild over the appeasement of Gandhi, uh, and he compared it to feeding cat's meat to a tiger, a particularly inept analogy in view of the Mahatma's well-known vegetarianism. <laughs> Churchill denounced the half-naked fakir in stronger terms than he directed against the fully clothed Führer. As late as the 6th of November 1938, he described Church, uh, Hitler as a great man. For a long time, he backed Franco. 
Having supported Edward VIII during the abdication crisis, he concealed his wartime conviction that the Duke of Windsor was pro-Nazi. Clementine said he was the last believer in the divine right of kings. During the war, Churchill often wore military uniform, which was hardly the livery of a democratic leader. He was often criticized for being dictatorial. Colleagues called him everything but from Caligula to Gloriana with a cigar. He fought a doomed rearguard action to preserve the empire, um, asserting that the Atlantic Charter didn't apply to the British colonies, and uh, Leo Amory complained, using all the old phrases of 1903. Roosevelt fought him a hopeless reactionary and, and treated Churchill on the subject of India as he treated southern senators on the subject of blacks. Harold Lasky, who we can mention uh, here, um, said in 1942, the premises of Mr. Churchill's thinking are set by the old world that is dying, as Burke's were set in 1789. He is unable to see, as Burke was unable to see, the outlines of the new world that is struggling to be born. Churchill dismissed Beveridge as an awful windbag and a dreamer. He suppressed or tried to suppress anti-reactionary manifestations ranging from the Internationale and the Daily Mirror to J.B. Priestley and the life and death of Colonel Blim. During his Indian summer, Churchill barely came to terms with the actual and impending loss of empire. He assisted in toppling Mossadegh, in Iran, a secret coup with fatal results. He remained anti-black, said Violet Bonham Carter, and resisted change in Africa. He supported Eden over Suez. At home, he re-established the Home Guard and voted for hanging. It's true he didn't try to dismantle the welfare state because Churchill always felt a powerful sympathy for the underdog and a strong sense of noblesse oblige. He was essentially a Victorian paternalist who thought that the masses should eat roast beef and live in snug cottage homes. As Herbert Morrison memorably said in 1942, he's the old benevolent Tory squire who does all he can for the people, provided always they are good, obedient people and loyally recognize his position and theirs. In short, as Lord Moran observed in, in the 1950s, Churchill was hopelessly out of tune with the spirit of his age and anachronism in his own lifetime. All this, and there's much more, constitutes a powerful case for seeing Churchill as more reactionary than progressive. Yet, Lord Beaverbrook was not guilty of absurd hyperbole when he said that Churchill had held every view on every question. And there's a sharp antithesis to the story that I've just told. I don't have time to dwell on it in, in, in detail, but a few obvious points must, must, be, must be made. Churchill genuinely believed in Britain's civilizing mission towards the empire, arguing for justice to subject people in the colonial office. You read Ronald Hyam's book on Elgin and Churchill in the colonial office, you see some extraordinary things that Churchill wrote in his minutes, which are enlightened by any standards. He favored conciliation of the Boers, the Irish, and others. He condemned the Amritsar massacre, and he asserted that the era of the British Raj was to India the age of the Antonines. As a liberal, Churchill helped to lay the foundations of the welfare state. He championed the cause of the left-out millions with labor exchanges, unemployment insurance, and so on. His improving schemes were at least as radical as those of Lloyd George. The liberals had instituted old-age pensions, he said, but we have yet to rescue the children. His collectivist ideals would have shocked Margaret Thatcher. His proposals for reforming the House of Lords were far more sweeping than anything contemplated by Tony Blair. When one considers Stalin's crimes, Churchill's hostility to the Bolshevism looks enlightened. Churchill was, after all, first and foremost, a Democrat. Um, I, I don't agree with John about this business of d democracy. He, 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 he kept intoning, you know, his father's, his father's mantra, trust the people. Um, observing uh, 
that the Battle of Britain was won on the playing fields of state schools. He said that since they had saved the country, they were entitled to rule it. He revered Parliament, the forum of popular sovereignty. Churchill defined civilization rather marvelously, and on this note I will conclude. A society based upon the opinion of civilians. It means that violence, the rule of warriors and despotic chiefs, the conditions of camps and warfare, of riot and tyranny, give place to parliaments where laws are made, and independent courts of justice in which over long periods those laws are maintained. That is civilization, and in its soil grow continually freedom, comfort, and culture. Thank you. Well, many thanks, uh, Dr. Brendan. Now, we have time for um, a few questions, and how this is going to work is there's a roving microphone, so please don't start speaking until the microphone arrives, otherwise we may lose half your question. Keep the questions short, please, rather than statements, questions, um, and finally, we'll probably take them in groups um, of uh, up to three questions at a time. So let's see what we've got then. Uh, there's one in the back corner there, and then after that, one out in the middle here. Yeah. Was Churchill in any sense a European, and if so, to what extent? Okay, well, that's the first one. And then there was another. We'll just take another question down here in the, in the middle, if you get past the microphone. Did Churchill actually change party, or did his party change? Okay. Both very pithy questions. With reference to the Alien Act. <laughs> okay. Should we take those two first, then? So, Lord Hurd. After the war, or his experience in, in the Second World War, um, persuaded Churchill into being a European. What he meant by that, though, was that um, France and Germany had, between them, wrecked Europe and themselves, um, and every effort should be made to stop, to bring them together, so that that couldn't happen again. He didn't really believe that there was a key role for Britain in that. He drew the three circles, so famous. I've seen the the, um, the menu card on which he on which he he, he drew it. Um, it it's the three circles. The point about them is that Britain is at the centre of all three. The three are the Anglo-American alliance, the Commonwealth, and uh, Europe. But Europe is in no way promoted as more important than the others. In fact, Churchill probably thought that the Anglo-American uh, alliance was really the, 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 the center, the, the key to the whole thing. So that was his, his foreign policy. Um, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he stuck to it. He, was, he would have been horrified by... Um, He'd been horrified, I think, by Mrs. Thatcher's attitude, her present attitude to, to Europe, which is entirely destructive. And he, he, but he would equally have been uh, fairly horrified by Monsieur Delors, um, because he didn't have a vision of a sort of bureaucratized Europe run from, from Brussels. Uh, that would have seemed a very bizarre uh, thought to him. And therefore he didn't when he was prime minister uh, and... and um, the, the, the present community began to take shape, began to take a series of rather rigid shapes. He, he I think, would, would have retreated from that vision. He wouldn't have liked that um, because he's, he's, he, he basically he was a, he was a, he was a patriot, and he believed in a in a, a role for Britain central 
and, and, and somewhat exaggerated. But that, would, that was his, his, his belief. That was his foreign policy. As regards, sorry, as a, no, I think he changed parties. Uh, I don't think the, 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 it was a case of the parties changing. Uh, they didn't really. They, they went on playing their own games. But he, he, uh, he, he, he deliberately made a, made a choice both, both times. Any comments? No, not even. No. Yes, uh, I think uh, Lord Hearn is absolutely right about um, European. It's, it's so different than it was when Churchill uh, lived that, that for us you know, the question has no, no real meaning for Churchill. Uh, I'm minded, uh, I minded, it's brought to my mind what he wrote mm. in December 1944 when Duff Cooper, who was a, a, a genuine uh, Europhile, very much wanted Britain and had been arguing indeed since 1941 that uh, Britain should take the lead along with all these exiled governments hanging around in London. Uh, after all, you know, they didn't have to go to Brussels anymore. They were, they were just sort of over the road in carriages. So you could just get them all. We'd actually met them all in the dining room of carriages and done it all alongside the, the, the cabinet meeting as well. Uh, and, you know, Duffy wrote this wonderful memo, vision splendid, you know, Europe, you know, and Churchill sort of read, what is Europe? Nothing but weakness. <laughs> I don't think he was terribly European. Did he change his party? Well, um, F.E. Smith once said that, that Winston has always been loyal to the same party, <coughs> the one gathered under his hat band. <laughs> I think that's about right. I mean, he didn't really mind what horse he rode, as long as he was the jockey. I, I, I agree with that. Um, uh, that, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a loyal party man. He, he hated the Tories in lots of ways. Um, he hated the Liberals as well. Um, he, 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 what he wanted was a coalition with himself as, as the leader. Um, and as for the European, he didn't really resolve the whole problem that we're still in. You know, what are we? Are we Europeans? Well, he, did, he loved the French, but he didn't much like the Germans. Uh, and he didn't want to be, um, he, didn't want to, he, he didn't want to sacrifice um, what he regarded as our salvation, namely the English-speaking peoples, that, 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 that is to say, the Anglo-American alliance. So that, that, I think, was the key thing. It had saved us in both world wars, and, uh, and he was jolly well going to ensure that that, uh, that predominated. Mm-hmm. We'll take some more questions. One back over there, and then another one out in the middle here. Hello. <clears throat> I um, don't care about the progressive and reactionary. I want to know who is the chair. Suppose Churchill... Roosevelt and Stalin are 60 years ago are there in Tehran. Who is the chair? I know who is the chair. I want you five tell me who is the chair. Thank you. So by, by which you mean who is taking the lead here? Or? Yes. Great them. Who is the chair at that table? Who is the leading player? Or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Would you say Churchill was more promoted, motivated, sorry, by power or ideology? <laughs> okay, we'll take those two then. What was the last question? Was he motivated by, by, by power or ideology? 
much more interested in power than I do. <laughs> uh, uh, he thoroughly disliked what he called Bolshevism. And uh, he, he would have intervened um, disastrously, I think, uh, in, the, in, the Russian, in the Russian Civil War. Um, he, he, he flirted with Mussolini, it's perfectly true, as someone has already said. But he, he wasn't like Anthony Eden, who was disgusted by Mussolini's table manners, which, uh, in his view, uh, 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 disqualified him from membership of any similar <laughs> entity. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, but he wasn't, he, he was a buccaneer. And he was a buccaneer of philosophies as well as of, as, as well as of, 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 of ministries. And uh, he, 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 he said, he, he made it up with, with Stalin. Of course he did. He, he fancied himself as the man who would bring Stalin to heel. He thought that the Brits and the, and the Russians, two ancient people, um, should, should to deal about it. And he, and he flew to, Russia, to Moscow and dealt, about, dealt a deal with Stalin in terms of percentages, we, we got 100% influence in, in Greece, 50% in Yugoslavia, next in Romania or Bulgaria, because the Russians were already there. That was real politics uh, as far as, uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, Pacheco was concerned. It didn't have much to do with ideology. Yes, I mean, there is, there is something uh, ideological about Churchill, um, which I don't think has been sufficiently explored. There's one book which compares him with Hilaire Belloc. That's rather, it's rather interesting. Um, but we, we need to think about that. I mean, he is in many ways a liberal, and he believes in lots of liberal things uh, well after the Russian Revolution, it, 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 it seems to me. And freedom is indeed an in, in, in important uh, word, and a, a, an orientation to the world is terribly, uh, is terribly important. Now, coming to the, the other side, the, the power side, um, where, what was Churchill's relative position? Uh, well, at the end of the war, of course, it's relatively, it's relatively weak. And he, he, on some very important questions like the atomic bomb, he can't get responses from President Roosevelt. That's the most extraordinary thing. He's actually humiliated um, uh, uh, in, in this. And it's, uh, the, the only comeback is to, is, to, is to grossly overplay the contribution of British scientists to the atomic bomb uh, when, it, when, it, uh, when it goes off. He has no control by the end of the, end of the war. Um, here's the wonderful irony, given the, the standard uh, 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 histories, that the moment of Churchill's great power and influence is the early part of the war, 1940-41. Um, the period when, supposedly, he relied on, on, on oratory and uh, uh, his capacity to mobilize people's enthusiasm, when Britain was, was weak. But the reality is this Britain was relatively, enormously strong in 1940 and 1941. Britain's relative decline in power during the war is spectacular. Mm-hmm. So Churchill was at the, at the helm of the greatest power on earth in 1940 1941 by lots of different indices. Confident in victory, as most of the British elite was, contrary to what uh, uh, John says. So he was powerful because Britain was powerful. The empire was powerful. As that power decreased, his say in, in these great international uh, 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 meetings inevitably, it was inevitably reduced. We have this wonderful fiction 
in Britain that, that, that words did it. No, it was armaments that, that did it and soldiers uh, that did it and industrial capacity that did it. Certainly, it was, it was all those things that did it, but somebody needed to mobilise them. Somebody needed to mobilise the people, and it's hard to see amongst the political elite anyone else going to do that at that point. Uh, and I think in that sense, Churchill is an ideologue, because we forget that a belief in freedom is not necessarily uh, universal or even natural. Uh, Churchill is an ideologue about freedom. He really believes that freedom matters. And that's why he's the kind of Whig Tory he is. That's why he doesn't necessarily like large states. He doesn't like large bureaucracies. In many senses, he's, he's, a, he's, he's very much at home uh, with, uh, with, 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 with certain types of American politicians who believe in small states uh, and releasing the power of, of, of people. So in that sense, oddly enough, if one takes freedom to be a, an ideological belief, then he's quite an ideologue. Who's in the chair of Tehran? Stalin. Why? Roosevelt thinks that the British are finished or finishing. Even if they're not, he's not in favour of the, uh, uh, the British Empire. and he's, he's really rather of the opinion, unlike Churchill, that the Atlantic Charter ought to apply to the British Empire. Uh, he's certainly not willing to have a pre-meeting as Churchill wanted, although they end up with a, a cockamamie thing in Cairo where Churchill can't get anything. And Churchill is bounced into what Roosevelt always intended to bounce him into, which is the Normandy landings in 1944. So, no, I think that, that Stalin is, is in the driving seat there. Roosevelt is of the opinion that, as Churchill is after Yalta, that Stalin is a man with whom we can do business. Uh, any of those of us who read the uh, minutes of the cabinet in 1938 when Neville comes back from Munich and also read the cabinet minutes when Churchill comes back from Yalta cannot help being struck by the similarity of the phraseology that Hitler and then Stalin is a man with whom we could do business. Neither of them were men with whom anybody could do business. They knew what they wanted. Whether by 1944, 45, given what had happened, that the war had gone on so long, and British power was so weakened by that stage, whether Churchill could have done anything more than he did by 1944, I doubt. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with, with that. I mean, by 1943, Churchill didn't want the phrase, the big three, used because he didn't like being thought of in terms of being lepidus. Um, you know, the, 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 and, and other people uh, like Duggan talked about the big two and a half. Um, so I, I think that's perfectly clear. And, I mean, power lay with the big battalions, as, as, as Stalin said. I mean, one's only got to look at the statistics that 80% um, of Germans who fell during the Second World War were killed by the Red Army. Um, so that, that's the reality of that. I, I'm not entirely convinced about this business of equating um, Chamberlain's view of Hitler with, with Churchill's and Stalin. It seems to me that Churchill was a romantic. One of the things that he writes about very eloquently in his, um, in, in, in his uh, biography of Marlborough, his great ancestor, was the Holy Alliance, as he calls it, between 
um, the, uh, b between Marlborough and um, Prince Eugene. Um, and this, uh, I, I think Churchill thought briefly that there could be a holy alliance between himself and Stalin. But nobody, nobody had got a better record of anti-Bolshevism than, than, I mean, right over the top anti-Bolshevism than, than Churchill. And he really recognized, I, I quoted the baboons hopping and capering over the ruins of civilization, and that was the kind of thing that um, Churchill thought about. And he recognized very, very clearly, and he said right during the 30s, up till the time that he thought there might be a possibility of a rapprochement with, with, uh, with Soviet Russia, um, that, that this was the negation of, of, of civilization. And I don't think that he... Uh, so, so one part of Churchill uh, revered Stalin because red soldiers were getting killed against the chief enemy, which was Nazism. Another part of him recognized that here was the most monstrous tyranny and that the person leading it, um, this sinister figure, Uncle Joe, he called him, um, was actually a, 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 a hideous tyrant. I think, I think there was a kind of ambivalence there. Mm. Take a couple more questions. One over there to start off with. Um, the diaries of Guy Liddell, head of counter-espionage at MR5, have just been declassified. And in it, according to him, Churchill wanted to... Uh, was it half the Nazi leaders shot without trial and the, the others in, in prisons without trial? So I just interested in the comments of the panel on, on that. Good guy, Liddell. Okay, and another one was a question I just had in the middle. Thank you. Um, was it Nobel totally on the literary merit? Or is, yeah, was it Nobel Prize totally on the, on the literary merit or uh, his fact that he was a, a powerful leader that that also counted. Thank you. Did we all get those? I didn't. The no, Nobel didn't Prize was it on merit? On literary merit. Yes. Yeah. 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 On literary merit, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's when we're yeah. shooting Nazi leaders. Yeah. Uh, the second question was about was his Nobel Prize. Yes, yeah, yeah, for the first one. It was about uh, shooting Nazi leaders without, or knocking them up without trial. Yeah. Was he saying that, that no. who would advocate? No. Sorry, I'm Diaries have revealed that, uh, that, that Churchill wanted to half a Nazi shot and the other lot was just imprisoned. Well, doubtless, a lot, a, lot a lot of people felt uh, something like that, and um, um, this is the end of the First World War, lots of demands to hang the Kaiser and so on. But, uh, um, but on the other, the other question, uh, literary merit. Well, um, uh, I don't think the, uh, the archives have been exploited to, uh, to answer that, uh, that question. I mean, the, the Nobel Prizes have always been very political. I mean, the, the physics ones and the medicine ones, very, very, very political. So it would be no surprise if this one the people were swayed by, by, by political uh, uh, concerns. But um, uh, uh, who are the other British Nobel um, prize winners in, in, in Bertrand Russell, uh, Goldsworthy, mm -hmm. uh, Kipling, mm -hmm. um, and more recently uh, 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 another lot. But uh, mm. so I mean, in that in that 
and that company, I think he does rather well, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think on the, on, the, on the Nobel Prize thing, first of all, I have on my uh, shelves the um, collected edition of uh, Churchill's works, which stretched to 54 volumes. And he didn't spend all his life writing history. Uh, so apart from anything else, anybody who can actually manage... And all right, we know he had help at times, but nonetheless, that he's not a bad oeuvre. And actually, it is, it is remarkably readable. Yeah. Uh, I love reading. I mean, the, 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 my favourite one is, is My Early Life. And if you haven't read it, you've got to, I envy you in one sense, because go read it now and you've got a great treat ahead of you. It's, it's a wonderful book, but actually he wrote wonderfully. And frankly, given the quality of what he wrote and given the amount of what he wrote uh, most most history departments would now be dying to hire him for the (laughs) (laughs) REN as for for obiter dicta in diaries if you read what um, River War is also an excellent book mind you uh, the the Malacan Field Force seems to be if you look on the internet at the moment the most quoted of Churchill's works that may have something to do with his comments about Islam uh, go Google it and you'll see what I mean later. But in terms of the, in terms of, of, of wanting to... Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the character and the diaries, frankly. I mean, you know, you can read Alan Brooks' diaries, you can read Cadogan's diaries, you can read Oliver Harvey's diaries, and it depends what the person was doing with the diary. And certainly, I've no doubt at all that, that, that at certain times Churchill probably had some fairly blood-curdling remarks to make about most of the Nazis. Actually, come to think of it, by 1945, particularly after what had been, what, Parthay newsreels had been into various places, there were an awful lot of people in, in uh, Europe who had fairly bloodthirsty ideas about the Nazis. And what is quite remarkable is not that people had bloodthirsty ideas, but actually that the so-and-sos were actually taken to trial and some of them were let off. I mean, personally, I was shot and out of hand. He was the man most responsible for letting Hitler in in the first place. So actually, uh, whatever Churchill said in diary, in, 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 in private conversations, was no doubt, as it often was, fairly incendiary. Uh, I mean, he was one of the world's great talkers and one of the, great, the world's great phrase makers. But I'm not sure one should, one should take um, that sort of thing as... Uh, as a settled conviction. Mm. I, I agree about that. I, it, it, I mean, there are, there are quite a lot of instances where he um, expresses similar sorts of, of uh, desire for vengeance and bloodthirsty uh, 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 retaliation against the, the, the Germans, which, which was something which, if you read the mass observation reports, people did feel. I mean, they, they wanted to give it back to them in, in spades, which indeed, of course, we did. Um, there are also things that, I mean, classically, um, Martin Gilbert's famous story about Churchill seeing the, the results of the bombing and saying, are we, uh, and with, with all his air marshals around him rejoicing in the, in the pulverization of German cities and Churchill saying, are we beasts? Now, he may have said that for the record, I don't know. Um, but um, I think that these, these fleeting remarks have got to be taken with a degree of caution. I don't, den- I don't, I'm sure that Liddell was, was, was right. 
Um, but you can also find, I think what's surprising about Churchill is that he was extremely belligerent and extremely pugnacious and extremely bloodthirsty and also deeply compassionate. And I think that this is a, you know, it's a very strange um, sort of contradiction in, in, in Churchill. Um, but it, it's all part of the, the, the humanity of the man, I would say. As far as literary merit is concerned, um, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> there's, none, there's, a, there's no damn merit in it, it really, is, is there? It's all, it's all des- decided on, uh, on, on, on extraneous uh, um, uh, circumstances. But um, like John, I, I think um, he's, he's, a, he's a marvellous writer. Uh, people have said that um, Churchill's style was, was bows and spurious, even in war was particularly contemptuous. Of, of his writing, uh, because it was it, it was neither one thing nor the other. It was kind of cod Macaulay. It was it was mock Gibbon. It wasn't the real authentic thing. And yet, just in the way that um, neo Gothic can be marvellous, Churchill's neo Macaulay or neo Gibbon was often it reached great heights. And of course, in 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 the speeches that we know about, um, they they are marvellous and. Uh, uh, um, the great heights of oratory. Uh, and even Alan knows, uh, uh, Alan's people in, 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 um, in the Archive Centre have just discovered some recordings that um, Churchill made, some, uh, and, and they are quite, quite extraordinary. Um, never been heard before, or very rarely. And Churchill, one of them, is uh, addressed to a convention of tax inspectors in 1952. <laughs> you could hardly uh, you could hardly imagine a less promising field for oratory than a convention of tax inspectors. And it's I I swear to you, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Well, on that note, um, just a couple of announcements before we wind up. The first is uh, the key announcement is there will be an open drinks reception uh, following this event. Uh, up on the fifth floor of this building, it's in the staff dining room. All are welcome to attend, so please don't be bashful. Do come along, and you can ask the speakers some further questions there. I'm sure they'll be happy to answer them. And the final thing, of course, to say in time-honoured fashion is to ask you to thank uh, all of the speakers this evening for a very lively and very informative event.